Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. I still have the book of Mother Goose Rhymes that my parents read to me and my brothers when I was little. I remember that I liked most of them, but there was one that I really hated. It went like this. Wee Willy Winky runs through the town, upstairs and downstairs in his nightgown, rapping at the window, crying through the lock. Are the children in their beds? Now it's nine o'clock. That was the part I hated. That now it's nine o'clock phrase meant that we had reached the non-negotiable end of the evening's readings and it was time to go to bed. Anyway, I developed a fondness for these little rhymes and eventually Sabina and I read them to our own kids and to our grandkids. They're fun, they're a little old-fashioned, but they teach the sound and the rhythm of language. Years after my parents read them to me, I took a course as an undergrad about folklore and decided to write a paper about the origins of Mother Goose. First, I wanted to know who Mother Goose actually was, but that proved to be harder to find out than I thought. What I was able to ferret out was that there are about as many theories as to who Mother Goose was as there are rhymes in the book. Some historians think that the original Mother Goose, assuming she was even a real person, was a woman who lived in 17th century Boston. Her husband, Isaac, died, and Elizabeth Foster Goose, or Mary Goose, depending on which source you read, moved in with her oldest daughter and wrote the poems to entertain her grandchildren and their friends. One article says that her son-in-law was a publisher and that he collected the rhymes and published them in a book as the tales of Mother Goose. But there are some holes in this story. The biggest one is that there are all kinds of French references, some of them going back to the early 17th century, in fact, around 1626, that refer to Mother Goose. There's even a reference out there to a 10th century Mother Goose. So whatever the case, the first collection of rhymes came out in 1697, published in France by Charles Perrault. By 1729, it had been translated into English, and in 1786, it's made its way to North America. So Mother Goose's true identity is a mystery, but her rhymes are very real. As I went back and read them as an adult, as I prepared to do this podcast, I began to wonder if they had any hidden meanings, and then I remembered that paper I had written at Berkeley. So I did a little additional research, and sure enough, they do. Many of them are simple poems created to entertain children, but a lot of them are rooted in dirty, nasty, bloody history and politics. For example, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. That's cute, isn't it? Actually, it's not. Contrary Mary refers to Queen Mary I of England, who came to be known as Bloody Mary. 
She was a fiercely loyal Catholic, and during her five-year reign from 1553 to 1558, she executed hundreds of Protestants for refusing to convert to Catholicism. Now let's dig a little bit deeper. Her growing garden refers to the cemeteries that she filled. And the silver bells and cockle shells? Well, brace yourself. Silver bells, and by the way, this just might ruin the Christmas song for you, they were thumb screws used to crush its victims' thumbs between two hard surfaces as a way to get a confession out of whoever belonged to the thumbs. The cockle shells refer to a torture device that was attached to the victims' let's just say, nether regions, again, as a way to coerce a confession. I'm not going to go into any detail here, but go look it up, or just think about the origin of the word cockle. And the pretty maids in a row? The maiden was another name for the guillotine, which was another one of Queen Mary's favorite tools. She also routinely burned people at the stake for refusing to convert. Over five years, she killed 280 people that way, and more than 800 others fled the country. Another poem from Mother Goose that's related to Queen Mary I is this one. Three blind mice, see how they run. They all ran after the farmer's wife, who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a thing in your life as three blind mice? The three mice refer to a group of Protestant bishops, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Radley, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, who tried unsuccessfully to overthrow the Queen and in return were burned at the stake. Their blindness refers to their religious beliefs and their lack of willingness to see the Catholic light, as it were. Okay, how about this one? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. In the middle of the 17th century, England was in turmoil. At one point, a royalist army was on its way through East Anglia to raise support for King Charles I. That army was attacked by a parliamentary army marching in the other direction. The two armies were pretty equally matched, so a siege set in that lasted 11 weeks, with the royalists taking refuge in St. Mary's Church in Colchester. The resulting siege of Colchester, as it was called, was part of the English Civil War, which was a dispute over the reign of Charles I, whose leadership practices were apparently quite similar to those of Bloody Mary. Ultimately, the siege ended, and in 1649, the parliamentarians captured Charles I and executed him. So, that brings us back to Humpty Dumpty. I know this is going to disappoint you, but he wasn't an egg. In fact, he wasn't even a he. Humpty Dumpty refers to a mortar that was used during the siege of Colchester. When the battle started, the royalists took refuge, as I said earlier, in St. Mary's Church, and apparently this mortar, basically a short-distance cannon, fell from its niche in the fortress and shattered on the ground to the point that it couldn't be repaired. Historians believe that the loss of this critical piece of armament may have turned the tide of the war. Now here's another oldie but goodie. Baa-baa, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, Mary, have I, three bags full. One for my master, one for my dame, but none for the little boy who cries in the lane. For this one, we have to go back to the 13th century. It turns out that wool production was a huge piece of the English economy during the 1400s. 
It drove all kinds of things, including the practice of enclosure, which was the controversial privatization of common land, a trend that ultimately led to the British Agricultural Revolution. But because it was such an important part of the national economy, King Edward imposed a tax on wool. In theory, and it's only a theory, the taxes were divided among the king, the master, and the church, the dame. None of it went to the farmer. But there's actually more to it than that. There's a darker side to this black wool story. As was the case in so many countries during the late Middle Ages, the Jewish population became a powerful and successful guild of tradespeople, basically the merchant class, the economic engine of the country. But their economic power was seen as a threat to the church. And even though Jews in England were considered at the time to be the property of the king, the king took measures to limit their influence, including putting into place laws that prevented them from making a living. Ultimately, Edward ordered the expulsion of the Jews from the country, and with them went an enormous piece of the national economy. So some scholars believe that the last line of the rhyme, none for the little boy who lives down the lane, refers to the denial of income to the nation's Jewish population. Okay, that's pretty dark, and it's pretty sad. So let's lighten it up a bit. How about this one? There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread. She whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Like so many of the Mother Goose rhymes, there's still speculation about who the old woman in the story was. But a lot of people think it referred to King George II of England, who, with his wife Caroline, reigned during the early 18th century. Some scholars believe that King George II was called the Old Woman because Queen Caroline was the real power behind the throne. The Old Woman, George II, couldn't control the children, the members of Parliament, and instead sent them to bed, the House of Commons. Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie kissed the girls and made them cry. When the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away. Georgie Porgy refers to George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, who had an affair with the Queen of France. The affair went public, and apparently it destroyed her reputation. Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. But between the two of them, they licked the platter clean. King Charles I was sometimes called Jack Spratt because Spratt was a term used at the time to describe a short man, which he apparently was. In the early 17th century, he declared war on Spain, but the nation's economy wasn't strong enough to support it, and the political will just wasn't there, so Parliament wouldn't fund his war. He came up lean. So his wife imposed an illegal tax to fund the declaration of war to get some fat. Ultimately, King Charles dissolved Parliament, thus licking the platter clean. And, of course, everybody knows this one. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Again, this is a thinly-veiled reference to royalty. Jack is apparently King Louis XVI, who was married to Marie Antoinette. He was cast out during the French Revolution and lost his crown, with his head attached, as did Marie Antoinette. But there is a problem with this explanation. The poem Jack and Jill first appeared about 30 years before Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were convicted of treason and beheaded. 
So it's more likely that the rhyme refers to Charles I, the same guy who tried to declare war on Spain but was denied by Parliament. At one point, he tried to reform the tax laws that controlled liquid measures in the country. But again, his proposal was rejected by Parliament, so instead he ordered that the volume of half and quarter pints be made officially smaller. The smaller measures were known as jacks and jills. Finally, we have this one, which everybody knows. Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Now, I've always believed that this rhyme refers to the great plague of London in the 17th century when bubonic plague wiped out a huge swath of the population. I've read all kinds of references to the fact that the rosy is the red rash that the plague causes on the victim's skin, that people believe that if they filled their pockets and masks with good-smelling flowers, posies, they could avoid the disease, that the bodies of the dead were burned, hence the reference to ashes, ashes, and that we all fall down refers to the devastating impact of the plague. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that that theory, much to my disappointment, has pretty much been debunked by the researchers who study this stuff. The most likely explanation, according to folklorist Philip Hiscock, is that the rhyme refers to the 19th century Protestant ban on dancing in Britain and North America, which, as you can imagine, was not very popular. People got around it, though, as people always do. They held what they called play parties, which were gatherings where people played ring games in which they held hands and formed rings and then they moved in circles. Technically, I guess it wasn't dancing. At some point, the innermost circle of people would collapse into the center of the ring. When I read about bands on dancing and music and such, because they're the work of the devil, I can't help but think of the scene from Ghostbusters when they meet with the mayor of New York in the middle of all the ghostly mayhem that's going on, and all the Ghostbusters play a role by saying, Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave. And then Bill Murray, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Okay, I'll end with this one. Peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot, nine days old. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may be aware that there is pretty much one thing on this planet that I cannot eat, and that's peas. Don't try to convince me. During my years of international travel, I have eaten things in other countries and cultures that most people would rather scrape off the bottom of their shoe. For the most part, they were actually pretty tasty. I just didn't look at them too closely. But peas? Oh, hell no. It turns out that peas porridge is a dish that dates from the 1700s. It was made from a base of peas, but the idea was that people would just add whatever was left over from the previous day's dinner to the pot, making an increasingly diverse pea-based stew, which they would reheat, thus avoiding food waste. But nine days old? That's just gross. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.